Have you ever been tempted to give up or check out in your walk with God? Have you been at a place in life's journey where you felt overwhelmed and overshadowed by life's obstacles, setbacks, or heartaches? It could be you are at such a place right now, a place where you are hungering for hope. If so, then Hope Along the Journey podcast is a ministry of encouragement created specifically with you and others just like you in mind. And now, here is your host, Mark Cravens, to share a word of encouragement with you today. Thank you, friend, today for joining us for this episode of Hope Along the Journey. I'm glad you decided to listen to today's episode because we have an episode that we're going to be airing that I think has extreme importance in today's world. In fact, we're going to be addressing here a little bit a subject regarding uh, child abuse, uh, sexual abuse. And so I just want to give all of the parents notification early on that if you have a child that's listening, you it be your choice what whether or not you want the child to hear what we're going to be sharing. Or if you're someone who has very sadly gone through an experience of childhood abuse, and uh, this might be a trigger for you. So I want to just encourage you to practice good self-care and make the choice that is best for you as we'll be listening to today's testimonial. Before we begin, I do want to go on ahead and thank our sponsor for today's podcast and broadcast, and that is Rhine's Auto Sales. My good friend Dwight Rhine has a wonderful car lot in Mifflinburg, Pennsylvania, and he has a beautiful website, rhinesautosales.com. If you will go to his website, you can see the beautiful inventory that he has, or give him a call at 570-966-2277. Again, that's Rhines, R-I-N-E-S, Rhines Auto Sales in Mifflinburg, Pennsylvania. Today, we have on this episode of Hope Along the Journey, a friend of mine, John Hopkins. John, welcome to today's episode. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and I wish everybody could see you because you're in your man cave, you know? We, you're, I can see the trusses, the, you know, the wood. There's even an old rotary phone. There's a lot of young people have no clue what that is, but an old rotary <laughs> phone even hanging on the wall. So thanks for taking time today to be part of today's episode. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. John is married to Karina. They have two children. He is in full-time ministry. John works for Youth for Christ. He is the City Life Director, and he's also youth pastor at his local church. John, a lot of people may not understand what that title means, City Life Director, so tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about what that means. Yeah, so um, last year I took on the position of City Life Director um, at the Muncie Area Youth for Christ um, where I live, and essentially what I'm doing is tutoring and mentoring um, kids um, currently at Southside Middle School, um, going in at lunchtime, building relationships with them, handing out candy, um, just generally asking how their day's going. Um, and throughout the year, that's led to some really good relationships. Um, some of those kids have started coming to uh, my youth group or other youth groups Great. in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole point is to help build build a relationship that will um, eventually make them a leader within their community. Um, so rather than taking a kid from the suburbs, a kid from 
um, the hood as it may be, um, rather than take them from that and give them a better life. It's to give them a better life in that so that then they can change those around them. And uh, so I love it. It's, it's a great opportunity and, and a dream come true for me to be able to do ministry. Wow. That's awesome. And, and how needed that is in our inner cities, working with, with young people. And I think a lot of people just absolutely are lost to know how to begin to work with um, the young people and children that come from so many broken homes in mm-hmm. the, in the urban areas of our country. Thank you for doing that. I'm glad that you have that vision. And then you work there at your church. So tell us a little bit about your youth ministry and, and maybe a little bit about what you're doing there at your church. Yeah. So, um, at the church, I do a lot of different things. <laughs> I, uh, am on the worship team on Sunday mornings and, uh, then in the youth pastor, um, Sunday evenings and okay. we're just, we're growing, um, and blessing us. Um, we're in the process of redoing a new building for the youth center, um, because we've outgrown the space that we're in. That's great. And so, yeah, just being able to, um, kind of connect my two positions um, at Youth for Christ and um, as youth pastor at my church, kind of connecting those two positions and um, being able to work together in this. And it's it's pretty awesome to to see the connect between the two. That's awesome. I, it is that is so great. And it's it's in it's in it awesome to be in the in the area of ministry that your heart where your heart really is. It's exciting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I've is. been I've been to your church. Uh, oh, I just love what's going on there. Your pastor Mark Heskett and the people there—they're just they're just great, great people. Well, we want to get into today's topic, John, and we want to talk about your story, about what happened to you in your early childhood development years, and give the listener an idea of some of the trauma and what took place. So this is your story to tell, John. So start wherever you're comfortable, share whatever you're comfortable with sharing, but tell us about what took place during those years. Yeah, so I uh, I grew up in a pastor's home. Um, my parents did everything they could to um, shelter us from things that might uh, dissuade us from being Christians or, you know, that might hurt us. And um, growing up in that environment, I had a very good life um, as far as the church that we um, were at. Um, my dad has pastored the same church since I was four, I think, maybe five. Um, he's still the pastor at that church. And um, that church didn't have high expectations for a pastor's kid. They let us just be kids. And um, so generally just had a, a really good childhood um, as far as church goes. And as far as um, my parents and them caring about us, of course, with dad being in ministry, um, also working full time, um, when I spent time with dad, it was doing ministry. And uh, so just always involved um, with dad at the church somewhere. Um, Mom homeschooled us, did literally everything they could to, you know, to protect us. And um, then when I was somewhere between the ages of seven and 10, I don't have a clear memory of Um, what the ages were. Um, I was molested by a family friend um, that was approximately five, six years older than me. Um, So when it happened, um, he was also underage. And um, just because of the taboo topic of sexual sin within church and how that's just not something that's not talked about, um, I didn't feel comfortable um, speaking about what had happened. And, uh, 
So I didn't say anything. Um, I still don't have all of my memories from 10 and under. I have a few that were told to me enough times. I assume that they're just there. Um, but the actual traumatic experiences, I only remember two or three of them. Um, and so I know that it was a perpetual thing. It's not something that was a one-time thing that happened. Um, but it was a perpetual abuse. And, um, again, this was someone else within the church. It was their son. Um, they were friends of my parents. So it was someone that my parents thought they could trust. Um, now as I'm older and I've talked to my parents about it, um, some, my mom said that she even had this boy babysit us when we were younger, um, while they were doing stuff for the church. And so just somebody that was unexpected, no one would have thought, um, that this person would have molested me. Right. So I went through, uh, my, my teenage years, um, still hadn't talked to anybody about it. Um, didn't talk to anybody about it until I was 18 or 19 years old. Um, when the realization hit me that something could have also happened to my younger brother. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so at that point I thought it was worth talking about. Um, so I s- spoke with my parents about it at that point and, uh, and then just kind of went through life the rest of the way after that. Um, mm-hmm. and just, I, developed a great ability to put on a mask, um, that I was okay. Everything was fine. Um, because I'd done it for so long, um, that I just developed that great ability. And, uh, until I was a lot older, my parents had no idea what all trauma I was going through just because I was so good at it. I could even hide it, um, from them. And so that trauma, um, kind of just continued through my life. Um, me not dealing with it as I should have. And um, then led into our marriage. Um, We had issues in our marriage because of my trauma and got to the point where I had to get therapy, had to get help, Um, started that process and started the the healing process of going through um, the therapy and just being okay to talk about it and, uh, and being open to talking about it with others. And, then that kind of led up to um, me speaking with someone that I worked with um, about what had happened um, because her organization was um, working through um, an online websites, apps, whatever else that they use <clears throat> to connect with overage men that were or women that are talking to um, underage children. And, um, and even having that discussion within about a week after that, um, because my perpetrator was from the area that I currently live in, um, and his family still lives here. Um, he lived in a different state at that point, but because of that connection, somehow, um, he connected with one of their, um, decoys and, um, started messaging them. And so she told me that, you know, that he had reached out and that he was messaging them, um, with sexual content, um, with, you know, telling who he thought was a 13 year old boy, his sexual desires. Um, and at this point, I think he was 36 or 37, um, when this was happening. And so, um, obviously there's a large age gap there. Um, and ended up sharing, after months of um, communicating back and forth, ended up sharing his location, um, his room number at the hotel he was in, 
they went to confront him and um, gave me the opportunity um, to confront him via telephone. Um, And I'd kind of worked myself up to that um, because I knew that it was going to happen for about six months. And so just kind of worked myself up to being able to face him, um, even though it wasn't face to face and uh, was able to confront him. And um, then just kind of had to start the healing process over again, Um, just in a different spot along the journey, but still kind of had to back up and start over. Wow. Well, that's a, uh, tell you what, as I've listened to you share this, I just, you know, my heart aches as I think about all that you went through and the journey Mm -hmm. that you've been on through this. Let's, let's take a step back. I told you I I might ask this question and that was, Mm -hmm. Why is it that what what feelings were going through your mind as a child? What because oftentimes the wrong person bears the sense of guilt. The victim mm-hmm. feels guilty. The perpetrator oftentimes threatens them or scares them. And then you said, like you said, you were raised in a home where talking about sex and sexual things was not. It just kind of was taboo to talk a lot about that. So what was going on? What were you feeling during that time? What were some some of the thought processes you were going through? I guess the earliest feeling that I can remember was feeling confused. You know, what, what's going on? What is this? What's happening? Um, and then shame, um, shame being a big one, um, that I felt worthless used. Um, and because I was taught, you know, my whole life that, um, sex outside of marriage, um, is wrong. Um, and that any sexual content, um, with man and man or woman and woman is wrong. And so for me, it was a compounded feeling of, even though it was nothing I did, um, Mm -hmm. I still felt as if I was somewhat guilty. Um, even though it wasn't any desire of my own, um, but I felt dirty and, um, that I was, not worthy uh, of forgiveness just because, you know, of the nature of what had happened. Right. And so, and then obviously I went through a lot of depression um, as a young kid and as a young teen. And then again, as I got older, developed some addictions because of it. There, right. there was a lot of things that, um, that I developed that, mm-hmm. um, that were based mainly on this trauma that had happened to me. And, and really mainly on the fact that I didn't talk about it and didn't deal with it. Mm-hmm. So when you finally did decide to break the silence and you told your mom and dad about it, what was mm-hmm. their response and their reaction to what you shared with them? Um, obviously shock um, and disbelief. Um, and they, they believed what I had to say. Um, at that point, it had been quite a long time. Um, since it had happened and, um, they really weren't aware of the laws at that point. And it felt like it had been long enough that it wouldn't matter, um, if we approached it legally. Um, now looking back on it, knowing laws, as I know laws now, I understand that, um, that, you know, it could have been legally approached at that point. Um, but we didn't know that. Um, so, but they believed what I had to say, um, and, you know, tried to be as supportive as they could in that situation. Yeah. And that's, that's extremely important, isn't it? 
that mm-hmm. parents really do believe their children because I've I've talked to both sides. I've talked to young people whose parents believed, and I've talked to young people whose parents just wanted to kind of turn a, a blind eye and and pretend like it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's important, isn't it, that parents really listen and believe their children when they tell them these things, isn't it? Yeah, because, you know, parents are the people that we should trust more than anyone. Um, and I know that's not the case for everyone. And unfortunately it's not, but in general, you know, when you tell a parent something, you expect them to believe you above everything else, above everyone else, you expect them to believe you and at least look into it and see Mm -hmm. if it's true. Um, and so I, I personally can't imagine what would have happened if my parents would not have believed me. I, that would have been devastating. me. Yeah. So you've been on a, a journey now for several years, what have been some of the healing steps uh, that you have taken to help you find the healing that you've needed? So I think that, uh, that um, my healing process really didn't start until after I was married. Um, I, like I said, I had developed some addictions, um, carried those over into my marriage. And um, because of that was, um, essentially almost forced to go to therapy and start dealing with, um, my own issues. Mm -hmm. Um, and when I started that process, um, I think the biggest step for me was being okay with talking about it to anyone, that it was just an open thing, that it wasn't shameful. There's no shame on me for what happened. Um, and that it was okay to talk to people about what was going on. Mm -hmm. And so for me, probably the biggest step in my journey was being able to talk about it because what that did was it helped me to heal through helping others. Um, and as I've gone through life, um, even with my new, um, jobs within the last couple of years, working with teens, um, and understanding that these kids, some of them are going through the same things or similar circumstances, um, to what I've been through. Um, so, and then obviously, um, understanding who God is right, and that God can love me, um, you know, in spite of everything that's happened. Um, and I'm ashamed to say it took me until I was probably, I don't know, 28, 29 years old to realize that I had no shame, you know, associated with my Christianity, um, that's right. and that, that God viewed me, um, you know, as someone that was worthy and that he loved me. And, um, so getting to the point of understanding that was, um, a huge process for me. Um, I remember we at my local church had someone that was attending our church that, um, had faced some charges, um, for, for child abuse. And, uh, and I really, really struggled with that person. And I remember, we were praying around the altar for something. I don't remember what it was. And I was kneeling next to him and I could not pray for anything. All I could think about was the feelings of hatred and unforgiveness that I had in my heart Right, right. and couldn't focus on anything else. And in that moment, um, I remember God saying, if I can forgive you, I can also forgive someone whose sins are similar to what affected you. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> being in that moment and understanding that and God speaking so clearly to me that that was another huge step in my healing, um, that, that, it, that I could let go of the 
um, unforgiveness and the, the bitterness that I had in that moment and start, you know, start to actually pray and be, you know, be a Christian beside someone who's, you know, sin in their previous life um, had, had been something that would have affected me, you know, similarly. Um, And then um, right before, probably a month before um, I confronted my abuser, I was at a um, large Christian concert had taken my teens there. They were promoting some apps and stuff. I don't remember what all they were promoting, but one of the things they were promoting was a website that you could put in a prayer request and they would pray for whoever you put in a prayer request for. And they asked us to text the number and text the name of the person that we felt like needed God needed to find Christ. And the first person that popped into my head was my perpetrator. And it was, that was another um, moment for me of understanding that um, I had come far enough in the healing process that I was able to say, he needs Jesus just as much as I needed Jesus. He needs Jesus. And so that was just another moment of healing um, in my process. That's great. And you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here is because number one, there's very few men who talk about this and yet it, it, it happens to a, a number of young men. But the other thing is I want people to know that there's hope along the journey as they move mm-hmm. through this, that you don't have to be stuck, do you, John? You don't have to just stay where you are. There is truly hope to find healing and personal restoration through this process, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, I think that for me, what I've found is that the, the first real step in, in finding healing is talking to someone about it. it can be someone that, you know, you can fight in normally. It can be, you know, a family member, spouse, whatever. Um, because when you bring the evil out of darkness and into the light, um, that is when the healing can start. Um, but as long as you hold that in and, and, you know, never speak about it to anyone, it's just gonna gonna eat at you and eat at you and eat at you. That's right. That's right. And uh, so yeah, there's there's hope. There is there's always hope. And um, if there was no hope, there would be no reason to live. That's great. And uh, mm-hmm. and so finding finding um, healing in this process um, has really helped me um, to understand that there's hope for for anyone in any situation. Oh, man, that's great. That's wonderful. Well, John, I appreciate everything that you've shared, but I do want to transition into a subject that we talked about previously, and that was what can churches be doing to make sure that churches, youth camps, these kind of places where it seems like sexual perpetrators can so easily filter in, what are things that churches can be doing or what should they be doing to make houses of worship safer? I think the number one thing is believe the survivor, um, believe the story they tell you. Um, even if it's someone that you don't want to believe would do something like that. Um, maybe it's someone in power at the church or in the denomination or whatever it is. Um, but believe the survivor. Um, you can always look into it and try to find some proof and things like that. Um, but just like, um, we talked about earlier with the parent believing um, it's also important when someone shares that story with you, they, they are opening up themselves 
um, and being vulnerable with you. And so believe that story. Um, that's one of the number one ways to, to show um, survivors and victims of sexual crimes that, um, that you care about what's going on. And then as far as actually making it more protective, um, I know I've talked to some people about background checks and things like that. And those things will never completely protect, um, a, protect a church or protect um, the children in your church. But there are free um, sources online that you can get uh, training for sexual um, abuse. So signs of seeing it, um, how to tell if that someone might be a sexual predator. Um, there's how to even approach the subject when someone comes forward. You know, what are the steps you go through? And um, just last night I was Googling some things and really all you have to do is Google. Just yeah. use a Google search and find those things mm-hmm. and uh, maybe require background checks. Um, just do something um, to show the outside world looking in that you're trying to show uh, teens and parents that you are trying your best um, to prevent anything from happening within the church. Yeah. I think we should do everything within our power to make our houses of worship, our youth camps as safe as possible. There'll never be a way that that you'll always be able to 100% of the time to prevent some things from happening. But it really does behoove us to do our due diligence, doesn't it? And try to do our best to make it safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate, John, all that you have shared. Just, Just one quick word here. If you're sitting with somebody who is where you were back a few years ago, and maybe you're sitting with them at a coffee shop, and they suddenly open up and tell you some of the heartache of their story, what would be one or two things you would tell them that they need to immediately start doing? Um, Find a therapist, start therapy. Um, That can be a Christian therapist, a secular therapist, whatever it is. Find someone who can give you professional help, give you professional advice, um, and don't be afraid to try to get charges pressed against the person um, that committed the crimes against you um, because that's important as well that, that other people know that that same um, perpetrator could be preying upon other people. That's so so I would say talk about it and find a therapist are the two top things that I would um, suggest for anyone to do. Yeah. Well, John, thanks so much. It's been a joy to have you, uh, even though it's been a tough subject to talk about. Uh, it is definitely a much-needed subject, and I appreciate you taking the time to do that. Please tell your wife hello. And, uh, Will do. Thanks for being on the Hope Along the Journey episode today. We appreciate it so much. And I want to thank all of you, my friends, for listening to Hope Along the Journey. We appreciate so much your listenership, and we would love to hear from you. Drop us an email sometime at hopealongthejourney at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram and let us know that you're listening. I encourage you today, as I always do, to look to Jesus. He is the hope of the world. If you look to him, he will help you find hope along the journey. God bless you. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you would like to know more about Hope Along the Journey, or if you would like to make a donation to show your support and appreciation for this ministry, then visit our website at hopealongthejourney.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for more hope along the journey.